0: oh man i feel honestly kind of depressed why what's up just researching this episode just makes me sad really yeah why well do you know where ninjas are now because there's not much of a demand for them you know what they're doing now no what they're boy scout troop leaders seriously yeah yeah wow i mean it's interesting and all but it just seems so beneath them you know i have to admit the badges are kind of cool You know, like the the stealth and assassin badges. Those are neat. Totally. Although they're a little more like Eagle Scout at that point. But still, I mean, Mm -hmm. I would imagine the assassin badge
1: has to be like an 18 plus kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: What are samurai doing?
1: Oh, dude, don't don't even get me started.
0: Yeah, it's that bad. You know that guy
1: at like a really nice wedding who uh, cuts the rib roast for you? Yeah. Yeah, they're doing that.
0: Oh, no. Yeah.
1: Seriously? It's a tremendous waste of resources. That's horrible. But it's actually very efficient.
0: I imagine the slices are pretty nice though. Yeah, they're
1: very, very nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Mr. Moriarty. It's a shame about those samurai. I know. Makes me so sad. No kidding. Ninjas—that's actually kind of cool. But the samurai—that's just—it's uh, terrible, it's terrible. And no, honestly,
1: considering how revered they are in uh, still to this day in, in Japan, I mean, they're considered a symbol of Japanese culture. Uh, and the katana specifically—it, uh, <laughs> we don't mean—we we mean no disrespect, obviously. It's just a light <laughs> little joke. Yeah. we were making uh, as they usually are. Indeed. I don't think we ever make heavy jokes on on this podcast. How are you, sir? How
0: was How was your Easter? My Easter was was fantastic because you know. Amelia's getting bigger now, she's uh, almost seven weeks old, and Sophie has her birthday this month, so we do always do like a combo Easter-Sophie birthday, yeah, which involves, it's a pretty cool birthday party, because you get an egg hunt and all that good stuff, and uh, she's obsessed with wolves, you know this. Oh, of course, yes. She loves them, and so we we made a, my sister made this amazing fusion bunny-wolf cake Uh, really yeah it's a big head of a wolf but with like large bunny ears and overly large whiskers and kind of like bunny nose but it's very predominantly wolf as well uh she, she went pretty nuts for it
1: wow very cool yeah it was fun how about you uh it was great well as you know sean has been in town he was on uh nerds on or he will be i should say on nerds on film that goes live tomorrow when this comes up we're super excited about that So uh, he's been in town. We got a chance to hang out with him. We did. We watched Masters of the Universe. Well, we watched most of it. I think the movie was so horrible for a lot of people that they just couldn't wait it out. There was only like 20 minutes left, too.
0: Yeah, I did enjoy seeing Tom Paris from Star Trek Voyager. Uh, as a leading role I thought that was awesome Kevin is he the is he the boyfriend or? yeah he's the boyfriend
1: oh no kidding yeah yeah I he plays it. the
0: helmsman on, on Voyager
1: oh my god that's amazing I didn't know that that's awesome that was fun um, yes yeah, so we did that and then of course Sean has been touring kind of just like Northern California a little bit we're gonna go to a Giants game uh, in a couple of days that'll be fun that'll be really fun and he went to Santa Cruz and all this lots of fun stuff uh, and for Easter, it was great. We just had family over at the house, had a nice big brunch, you know, went to Mass early on, and uh, and Sean going to Mass, considering he didn't burst into flames immediately <laughs> upon entry, uh, was really saying something. Yeah, listeners, if
0: you don't know what we're referring to, just listen to pretty much any episode <laughs>
1: exactly. of Nerds on Film. Yeah, you'll know how much of a heathen he really is. <laughs> That's basically the long and the short of it. And he's been here all week. You know, I've been working, unfortunately, so I haven't been able to spend as much time with him. But we've been hanging out in the evenings. It's been cool.
0: Yeah, tell me about it. First week back at work. That's right. Tired. Daddy's gone back to work. I know. It's been rough. I don't want to talk about that. It'll make me sad. Yeah, fair enough. You know what, what makes me happy, though? Listener feedback. This week in listener feedback. Nice segue, dude. I'm working on those. I'm trying to get better with the segues. But once you figure out your balance, you don't, Tend to fall forward as easily.
1: That's true, and honestly, that's way better than very funny, very funny. <laughs> thank you for uh, at least acknowledging it. The, <laughs> God, stupid joke, <laughs> but that's our relationship at this point. I was going to say it's, it's also way better than the musical segue that we did that we've been doing on that we used to do on Nerds Film. So good on you, sir. Well, who else is our first
0: piece of feedback? Uh, this comes from James, who is from Brisbane, Australia. Uh, he says, "G'day." I love that they say that. Uh, I'm from Brisbane, Australia. I've recently started listening to your podcast. I just want to say thank you for talking about Gallipoli in your recent podcast. It seems it's a battle that isn't spoken about. Sorry, John. It seems it's a battle that isn't spoken about by many outside Australia and New Zealand, uh, but it's definitely a defining moment in our history. Australia had only been a federation for about 13, 14 years uh, before that, and was a very new nation. Uh, Before that, Australia was still a mishmash of British colonies, and that's very true. You know, Australia had only really existed as, as a unified country for you know, a very short time before they were asked to go and, and make those kind of sacrifices in a, in a world war. So he mm-hmm. continues, Anzac Day is a huge affair over here. In war memorials all over the country, uh, dawn services are held to remember those who died. Uh, these are packed full of people. The Battle of Gallipoli is seen as a time where Australia grew up as a nation, one where we were betrayed by our allies. Many Australians still feel resentment at our treatment by the British for deploying us on the wrong beaches, for ignoring the overwhelming evidence that the invasion was a lost cause. Uh, Many stories are told of brave soldiers who helped each other and risked life and limb for their fellow man, regardless of the situation, of the culture, of mateship and pushing on regardless of the odds. It's very much a huge part of our culture over here and quite refreshing to hear someone outside of our country talking about it. Thank you and keep up the great podcast, James." You know, I will say that is a very common sentiment, that the British were the ones who really kind of betrayed the New Zealanders and Australians. And, you know, I I do want to kind of set the record straight, because absolutely it was the British Admiralty and, uh, you know, the War Cabinet who was making those decisions and making very, very poor ones, but they were also making them for British citizens as well. Uh, there were a lot of British who died in very horrible fashions in Gallipoli, and certainly I don't say that to undermine the significance and importance that it is uh, to Australian and New Zealand as countries, but I do want to acknowledge that also uh, many British and many other members of the other uh, British colonies at that time who sent troops from India, for example, and many other parts uh, from around the world also lost their lives on, on the beaches of Gallipoli. So, James, uh, thanks very much uh for your for your letter we appreciate it absolutely
1: we've got another one uh from me from who, you you wrote the, the show no the person has only identified themselves as me i wonder if they knew that we would get into that conversation yeah. uh subject is from me to Ha haha that almost rhymes that was all that person by the way <laughs> um we'll, i actually am going to paraphrase this because we read the first portion of it on nerds on film Oh, okay it was great we really we love it Appreciate the feedback. You know, it's always good to hear a vote of confidence from our listeners. They did give a couple of suggestions for Nerds on History. One is females who kicked ass because we always hear of men who came, saw, and conquered, but hardly ever are women mentioned.
0: I think it's a great idea. It's one that we've had uh, as a suggestion before.
1: They've also talked about, they mentioned uh, ways you can go with it, female monarchs, uh, also female pirates, particularly uh, Ching Shi. Oh, yeah. uh, Who, despite being born into a male-dominated world, defied the odds to become leaders. So, good. Elizabeth I is really a great one we have to talk about, too. Oh, absolutely. Too. Yeah.
0: And Catherine the Great, too.
1: Catherine the Great, yes, indeed. Um, Joan of Arc. Oh, there's a lot. There's, there's tons. Well, yeah, Joan of Arc, yes, definitely. But Joan of Arc also had a lot going. We talked a little bit about her, her execution, at least, but not so much her... Um, her kick-assness. Her, exactly. What yes. what got her to be so such a force to be reckoned with.
0: Which is the academic term. I just want to verify for any of her listeners. Yeah, listener.
1: absolutely. Kick-assness is... is kick-assness uh, is definitely the proper term yeah. for it. No question. The other also uh, piece of feedback they gave was potentially for a hybrid episode of Nerds on History and Nerds on Film.
0: We haven't done one of those in a while.
1: Yeah, and it says, seeing as we are all nerds, maybe history of fandoms would be interesting. Fandoms have probably been around since stories were invented, but it really uh, started up within the last couple of years. They talk about uh, Janites, Sherlockians, and Middle-earth fandoms, and possibly the more modern ones, i.e. comic book fans, Trekkies, so forth, Star Wars fans. Who don't really have a name? They're just Star Wars fans.
0: I've heard Warzian kind of thrown around a few I see, times. I've,
1: I'm trying to start the whole Warsian thing, but no one seems to like like that idea. Maybe I heard it from you. I think you did hear it from I me. I
0: support you in it, however. Thank you. I, think I it's support kind of a cool name, too. Yeah. I think we should make bumper stickers. Yeah, and sell them for uh charity. Okay. And, and by charity, I mean a fund forcing George Lucas to shave his beard.
1: Folks, let us know if uh, Warzian sounds better, than and if you would, would prefer Wars to then.
0: see George Lucas wish, without facial hair, looking like Chewbacca.
1: Sure. Uh... <laughs> And, of course, they end with thanks for doing the podcast, and they really are the highlight of their day. So, Well, thank you, because that yeah. was the highlight of our day. Yes. Uh, we got a great piece of feedback from Tanya on her Facebook page about two weeks ago. So uh, sorry we're just now getting to it. Uh, but she's she writes, Morning Nerds, I'm a big new fan of the show, and recently had an idea to send along. The list on the website is a little long to read quickly, so I went to see if there was a Wikipedia entry for you guys. And she was, No! Why not? <laughs> uh, because she had like ex- exclamation points and question marks together and capital letters. She also mentioned she would love to hear about the history of the Hope Diamond. Oh, it's um, a good one. Definitely. And she said, sorry if we've already covered this because she's still working our way through the previous sessions. And no, we have not talked about the Hope Diamond. And of course, there's that, no, there's so much about it that we, we would want to talk about. We haven't really talked a lot about jewelry in general on the, on the show love to talk about the crown jewels at some point cuz they they are unstealable at this point everybody who's tried stealing them they get recovered very very quickly but i guess it's not like stealing a priceless piece of art because it just of there's no market for it right it just goes back into the hands of the people who are looking for pretty quickly because of that
0: yes and no i mean there's a lot of private collectors out there and what have you and this is a big problem you know following the invasion of iraq and and what have you and seeing you know the looting that was going on and some of those artifacts going out yeah absolutely it's kind of easy to track them and trace them and bring them back home but at the same time those who are very discreet about their purchases who are used to doing it can keep it in a private collection and many times not wanting to make it very public or show it off they feel much more satisfaction in holding on to it and keeping it a secret yeah. It's pretty rotten.
1: Definitely. We'll definitely have to touch on that at some point. And thank you guys for giving those. In fact, actually, we should announce this because uh, the next month is we're going to do an entire month of episodes devoted strictly that came from listener suggestions. That's so. exactly
0: right. Yeah, that's been something that we've been kind of talking about doing for a long time and it's finally going to happen. Yeah, because so. we've
1: got so many of them. We probably won't get through them in one month. But Oh, we, there's no way. No, but we at least now will devote a good chunk of them to May.
0: Yeah, it's a good start. Maybe it'll become a tradition. Maybe we'll revisit it again sure. uh, next year.
1: Sure. We just need to come up with a catchy name for it. Yeah, we got a week. We'll figure it out. Uh, um, so our last
0: piece of feedback. Yes. This comes from uh, from Jill. She tweeted us, uh, said, At neurotomy I just did a class on the Middle East, and I noted that you refer to this area as Near East instead. Why is this? Well, uh, to be totally honest, the terms Near East, Middle East, and Far East are really interchangeable. Uh, in the academic world, they are... Used to pretty much denote the countries of the Arab Peninsula, yeah. uh, including several countries in North Africa and oftentimes Afghanistan and other countries.
1: As is the term Central Asia as well. Yes,
0: exactly. And, you know, they're all a wide variety of different terms describing the same area. I like Near East because uh, in ancient studies, we still refer to the area predominantly as the ancient Near East. You don't really hear ancient Middle East. You usually hear ancient Near East in the, sure. in the vocab. Uh, if you are a graduate at Berkeley and their Near Eastern Studies program, then uh, I think the the term is usually, often on their tongues as well. So
1: sure, and let's be totally honest here. It, variation, right? If we yeah. say Middle East, Middle East, Middle East over and over again in one conversation, it gets kind of boring. Yeah, it's know? not really
0: in the Middle of the East anyway. It's, it's true. Whereas the Near East is near the it's, East. It's actually more or less
1: the West of that region of the world. Yeah,
0: but people don't say the West of the East. Exactly.
1: <laughs> you, you can't say that, right? And we've also shied away from term orient because that seems ori- horribly politically incorrect correct yeah. well, which is why we don't call the west occident either because it was the occidental and the oriental yeah, right exactly those terms fell out of fashion like 50 years ago so you know you have to come up with these other other terms right
0: i'm just so- going to refer to it as awesome land from now on why don't we jump into the topic for this week yeah why don't we actually go to the east because we're talking about the near east but this is a perfect segue let's move into the east
1: perfect we, we've been wanting to do this for so long long we've
0: been teasing it for a really long time.
1: totally and we've gotten we've we've done segments like we talked about the shogunates at some point in time we did a also bit, yeah yeah with the uh the kind of this week in history uh episode about a year ago actually yeah and uh we also talked about the chin dynasty of the Terracotta soldiers a couple months ago that's correct right so we've talked angkor l-
0: wat of course when we we're talking Angle about Watt, our absolutely the yeah.
1: yeah so we've talked a little bit about asian history and i'm glad we we've, we've devoted more time to it also, of course, the Stupa Sancha uh, in India, too, right? We, we, a lot of people seem to don't, disconnect that India is the second largest country in Asia, yeah. next to China, in both size and population. So, uh, in fact, India now has a, over a billion people in it now. That's it's,
0: a lot of people. It's crazy One-eighth to of think, the world's population.
1: It's crazy to think that, well, not just that, it's crazy to think that you put India and China together, those two countries alone, are a third to a quarter of the world's population.
0: Yeah, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. Uh, that being said, we're actually going to focus on Japan a little bit, right? Because we have these two cultural icons, I and mean, we were joking about them in the cold open, but they're really, they are fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's not a joke. Uh, yeah. They're an, a very important staple of Japanese tradition and history, and uh, really what brought Japan together, what unified Japan, uh, for better or worse, for loss of life or not, it, you know, it did create a a unified country, and they've become a, sure. a very important symbol. And of course, we're talking about the samurai and the ninja.
1: Exactly, the samurai and the ninja. And I think the biggest impact that we have to today, and we'll get to this later, is really that they survive through pop culture. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the really only way that, that they do survive, because their principal usefulness has has been outlived because of you know, advances in technology, the political status ch- change in Japan. Yeah,
0: modern warfare and modern modern politics killed the samurai, and the ninja was killed even before that. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad that us nerds are helping to keep it alive. I think it's appropriate that we nerds on history are doing this topic.
1: Definitely. So the funny thing is, the word samurai is, well, that's a plural for a soldier, uh, particularly a, a noble military. Really, samurai, and I, for, I think this is almost obvious, but I want to say it anyway. A samurai is a pretty much this, the, the Japanese equivalent of a knight. And, yeah. I mean, and I mean that in the strictest sense of the feudal sense, right? Because if we're talking about the feudal systems in both Europe and Japan, there are surprising similarities. In that you've got a caste system, you've got uh, essentially peasants working class, which tend to be, you know, farmer, farmers tend to be more pe- peasants in Europe, but you've got farmers, you've got, I know, artisans and merchants, and then you've got uh, the daimyo, the daimyo, which is this no- noble class that sits right below the royal family, the imperial family, and the emperor, and the daimyo, all these lords have these samurai working under, under them, you know, and they themselves are samurai, they are soldiers too, but they have these other soldiers, these foot soldiers, as you were, that would work for them. And uh, the thing about samurai is they actually the other term they're called is uh, either bushi or buke, which is interesting because the uh, the code is bushido, exactly, which yeah. is the way of this. Basically, it literally means the way of the samurai, right? The way of the of the bushi, and it's very much the romantic side of knighthood, the stuff that we'd like to think Europe had, but really didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it wasn't until like the Arthurian legends of the thirteen, fourteen c- centuries that really kind of go back and play up this romantic side that really wasn't there. Exactly.
0: Um, but Japan was actually doing it. Japan was
1: actually doing it. And doing exactly. it before that as well. Right. And Bushido, I think, is is really... You have to understand that before you understand everything else about the soldier. Because Bushido is all about honor. It is yeah. all about uh, respecting the honor of your opponent as well as the honor of yourself and dying with honor, right? So um, everything about that philosophy colors all of the cool stuff that we like to think about when it comes to samurai. The martial art that they learned, right? Aikido. Aikido is basically a completely non-offensive martial art. Your goal is to only deflect the attack of your opponent, not to actually invoke harm on them. Again, dishonorable. You, you, don't, you don't attack somebody, you defend yourself, basically. Well, the end result of killing the other person. Sure, of course. I mean, there's there's all these exceptions, right? Because the samurai beheaded tons of people, you know, <laughs> with, with their katana, of course. But uh, who wasn't? Ex- exactly. Anytime you give anyone in the world a sword, someone's losing a head. Totally. So once we understand that, I think we'll see how there is always, of course, legend and reality. And yes, there were plenty of samurai who were not completely adherent to Bushido, but the fact that it's there is still important, because yeah. there's always been this attempt to try to adhere to it.
0: Sure. But any time that it becomes ingrained in the politics of any society, like any politics, there's going to be corruption.
1: So really, if you think about it, samurai is the the function, the like I said, the, the soldier, right? Bushi is the philosophy, right. right? So it didn't take long for the two to become synonymous. So just to give other. some
0: context then to our listeners who maybe are not as familiar with uh, the history of J- Japan. What, what's the what's the very general time frame that we're talking about?
1: There, there was a about a three to four hundred year point in time where Japan was under civil unrest. You know, there was no unified government necessarily. There was an emperor, of course, but he had all these different warlords. Basically, all these different daimyo who were warring over different territories. We see a lot of similarities that we see in Europe. You uh, know, f- clan crests. Every um, samurai not only had a flag, but they also they had symbols that were on their clothing at one point. It was required that they had a symbol that, denoted, back when there was a peaceful Japan, they had, had even had like their family or their clan crest embroidered on their clothing. It was the law. Mm. that they couldn't walk around without that because they needed to signify who you were and uh, what clan you came from. It's a really, really interesting. But um, up until, we're talking really about the late 13th to early 17th centuries. So quite a bit of time. Quite a bit of time, indeed. And it really came to a a, kind of a head in the 1580s, which is interesting because that was around the time that Japan had started to open up trade with Europe, too. Right,
0: that was the Sengoku period, which literally means warring states.
1: Correct. And so uh, what I find more fascinating is talking less about the political intrigue because, I mean, it was a very long and bloody war. And it really took a couple different guys to get the final pieces in place. The two people who helped kind of finalize that conflict was uh, Oda Nobunaga and uh, Tokugawa I- Ieyasu. Okay, so Oda Nobunaga was a very powerful lord and uh it was actually not uncommon when you were entering truces with other warlords that you had to have leverage. So it is not uncommon to uh to take one of the children of your opponent hostage um, for years at, at a time. And this happened to Tokugawa actually. His Yeah. Uh, Tokugawa was hostage for like I want to say from childhood all the way up until he was at least 18 to 20 years old. Keep in mind that when we think of the term hostage, we're not talking about mistreatment. They were given all the furnishings of any other nobility in this part of uh, of Japanese history. It just happened to be that they were indentured to this other warlord. Seems like it's actually a really kind of a brilliant political ploy because, you know, you're not going to want to make a move against that person, because they will either, one, kill the child in question, or they will kill them indirectly through some sort of, you know, coup. So, um, to make a long story short, Tokugawa, you know, you know, rises to manhood. He's been given all the training uh, that any other samurai warlord would have would have received, but then he uh, finally has the choice to leave once he becomes an adult, adult and of course he does. And uh, what he wants to do, of course, is he wants revenge, because he wants to... <laughs> to regain the honor that he feels has been taken away from him. So what he does is he partners up with another warlord whose name is uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and uh, they kind of form an an alliance to uh, take out Nobunaga. And Nobunaga, uh, in very epic ways, of course, he he commits suicide, and you know, it's a very grand (laughs) ploy that was taken. Basically, now you have these two guys who have amassed a ton of power. And keep in mind, they were 260 daimyo at this point. Yeah, you know, and that's just the warlords. That's not including the foot soldiers, right? At this point, so there's a lot of people, and uh, Tokugawa Ieyatsu ended up. Th- I'm really fast forwarding here. Uh, he basically takes out Hideyoshi uh, through a through a long stream of battles and amassing of power,
0: and uh, and employing some rather interesting help as well, which we'll get to in a little bit.
1: Sure. So much so that the emperor declares him the shogun, which hadn't been declared in a long time, and the shogun is essentially. The commander-in-chief of the country they he has control of the entire military and in many senses the government as well right the emperor will always have the divine right to rule japan in this part of of japanese history but the shogun has all the, the power behind all the, the real front. power
0: absolutely exactly
1: so there's this illusion right but then again it would also be dishonorable for the shogun to make a move to overthrow the emperor right so there's this this very interesting political system where it's all Cordial, but yet the emperor knows that hey, if if he really doesn't keep this
0: guy happy, he could totally be just wiped out. And honestly, it it more or less stayed that way throughout much of Japanese up until the end of the Second World War. The
1: the, the Tokugawa Shogunate wasn't the only Shogunate. Yeah, there were earlier Shogunates that took place, but this was the last one.
0: um, What I'm saying is, even after the Shogunate, you know, system was abandoned, that same system simply took on a different name and and a different. uh, political affiliation and just continued to be a part of Japanese ruling society until the end of the Second World War.
1: Sure. So the, those are kind of the, the major timeline points that I think help color the just the Japanese history.
0: Tokugawa Ieyasu was an amazing military leader. He was.
1: He was a brilliant strategist.
0: Absolutely. And he employed um, not just samurai in warfare either, but he also employed ninjas. Oh, did he? See, that was the part they left out of the, the documentaries I watched. Please, enlighten us a little bit. Well, before we get to that point, let's talk a little bit about the ninja, where the ninja starts. Because where the samurai are the upper class, the elite, right. the knights, if you will.
1: Because, yeah, again, Japan basically had a caste system. Yeah. And uh, the lowest of the lower the peasants.
0: Yeah, who yeah. also just happened to be the ninjas. Ah, the peasant warriors versus the noble warriors. I love it. I know. I want our listeners to forget everything you would think you know about ninjas.
1: Okay. So in other words, they had nothing to do with turtles?
0: Well, there is the ooze period in, in Japanese history. The Uze period. <laughs> the Uze period, yes, which was uh, very much uh, fought beneath ground, uh, mostly in uh, sewers. But uh, that we're not going to get to today.
1: Okay, that's good. Mostly because just talking about the logistics behind Japanese sanitation at this point in time is <laughs> way too much to get into.
0: Well, that and I'm completely making it up and making a reference to... <laughs> I know, I'm... To turtles,
1: but... <laughs> yeah, I, like, I like the Uze period. It's a, uze like, period. That might be the one of the more clever of your puns that we've... Well, thank we've, you. We've, yeah. Thank you very
0: much. Um, I will say, though, that here are the, the samurai who are of the absolute elite, and here you have a need now to kind of uh, countermand that, right? Because the samurai is all about... Open warfare, meeting your opponent in an honorable battle, dying in an honorable way, making it as public a spectacle as possible for the honor of your family. Whereas the idea of sabotage and espionage, terrorism, things like that were... All the fun stuff. (laughs) All the fun stuff, yeah. That was all really shunned and looked down upon and looked down upon for a very long time. That is more or less up into this period of complete and total unrest because they realized that conventional methods alone were not going to be enough to create the stability that they were looking for True. To, to conquer their enemies.
1: And honestly, a big portion of this also... Oh, okay. I'm thinking it's still about samurai. I'm sorry. Keep going.
0: That's okay. Yeah. No. Uh, but during the, the Sengoku period, there was now this... Sengoku? Sengoku, yeah.
1: Okay, because that sounds like the main character on Dragon Ball. And it sounds like a joke, but I'm not kidding. The full character name is not just Goku. It's I think it's Sengoku. Is it? I think so. I don't list, watch the show, so I'll have to defer to our listeners. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen it either. But if it does, I just wanted to bring it up because it speaks th- of that. The
0: that cultural thing. impact of it, sure. yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, well, yeah, regardless, I mean, the, the Sengoku period, this this time of unrest, it, there was a need now to fight dirty, and the people who are going to fight dirty are often the ones who are dirty, so the ones who are of the, of the absolute lower class, right? Uh, they were the ones who... Were already kind of being considered by the upper class to have very little honor and of themselves, so they were the perfect candidates to be recruited into this to be these hired mercenaries. Uh, It doesn't sound very nice, but that's just the reality of it. What is fascinating is how it evolved and over a period of a couple hundred years, what it would eventually become. Because while these were originally these kind of cutthroats who were, you know, probably not some of the nicest people, not some of the most stable people. Uh, Just as the samurai had their honor and tradition, the ninjas would also have their honor and tradition.
1: Interesting because the one thing you think about what we the, the big misnomer is that the ninjas are the dishonorable types that they will they will do whatever it takes to accomplish their mission. Right? right. Yeah, which is apparently for
0: whoever's the highest bidder. But to be able to command that kind of stealth, that kind of skill, it was considered an art form. And we think of it today by its kind of modern term of ninjutsu. Uh, which is kind of a misnomer and is much more of a modern construction. Actual ninja of the time did not employ ninjutsu. They they employed many different traditions and martial arts that they had uh, inherited, many from China and also from the the teachings of Sun Tzu. Yeah. But they themselves did not have a specific uh, doctrine until much, much later. Sure,
1: sure. And And let's be clear here when it comes to martial arts... The, the overall story of martial arts, I mean, we, we, we can't get into this now because, it, honestly, it's... it's Way that, too big. Yeah. And that's an episode in and of itself. A fascinating story, by the way. But basically, for those who want the the really, really quick version of it, um, martial arts really started in India, migrated up to China, and then as the Chinese make their attempts to conquer most of Asia, um, it spread to other countries, right? It spread to Korea. It, sp- it became Taekwondo. It spread to... Uh, Okinawa and came became karate and it spread to Japan and it became all the various forms uh, that went through there. jiu-jitsu, of course. Um, and in this case, the forms that would eventually later become known as... Ninjitsu. Ninjitsu, yeah.
0: yeah. But even the term ninja is also a modern construct, just like nin- ninjitsu is. Uh, the term shinobi is, however, uh, really how it was, was written and spelled and used. Ninja is more of a colloquial. Uh, it developed from kind of slang and you know, terms that were used just in, in spoken word. And it turned yeah. out that, hey, the West found it a lot easier to say ninja than it did shinobi. So... Well, that's one less syllable. Exactly. So post-World War II era, ninja became much more common. But before that, and in all the traditional literature and all the historical literature that is uh, talking about these actual individuals, they're referred to as shinobi. Yeah. Ninja has a certain mystique to it, to the name. I think yeah. in the West, we definitely... To the Hold west, on yeah. to it, yeah. Shinobi actually sounds, to me, more noble. It sounds like a so higher... More honorable. Yeah, exactly. And of these first real organized groups of Shinobi, they became a kind of a guild system, right? So they were all more or less mercenaries who were paid to, to, to do what they did, uh, but they still needed to have some sort of structure, and they still needed to have a, a place where people could come to employ their services. Uh, and you had a series of ranks that denoted who these individuals were. So the people who were essentially in charge of managing the guild... Um, were the Jonin, and they were the considered the upper men. They were the ones who themselves were not actually out there in the field and performing these these missions, but they were the ones who were organizing, making sure people got paid, all all of that. Uh, their next uh, rank, which is essentially just the assistant to the Jonin, uh, is the Chunin, and. They were the ones who were doing most of the actual logistical work for these guilds and, and making them functional and keeping them working and sending messages and things of that nature. It was the the genin who were the actual lower men who were the, uh, the field agents. These are the folks who were hired. These are the folks who received some training, went out there and performed the, these missions. And we think of ninjas, we think of these clad all in black, stealthy, skilled warrior types who originally... Couldn't be any further from the truth. Yeah, I believe that image actually also comes from Chinese
1: lore as well. And I can't confirm that for sure, but I feel like that was also... Well, no,
0: actually, this image comes from uh, a more a later romantic version of, of these retellings of these stories okay. of ninjas, all, all based Japanese literature of the 19th and 18th century. Okay, fair enough. So it created this more romanticized view of them. And if you think about it, you think about somebody who themselves is stealthy, because shinobi has many different meanings, but one of them is essentially to hide or be to be hidden. If you're all in black then you blend in with the night and it makes sense that you would you would wear something like that. But most shinobi did not wear anything like that at all. They wore their clothes, a peasant's clothes or the clothes of a monk or whomever it is that they were trying to imitate in order to infiltrate the enemy. Because that's who these people were. They were hired mercenaries and most of the time they were there to perform sabotage and to spy on the enemies of their of their clients. Eventually though, once they had gotten very good at it and started passing down these skills, you found that it then became more of a, of a family art and no more so than in the two provinces of, of Iga and Koga. Uh, these provinces were the very first to really form ninja clans. And there were a series of families all living in this community who are now passing it down from generation to generation. There was now much more organization uh, in terms of the actual skills that would be taught and passed on and the weapons of the warfare were now being perfected. And you think of ninjas in in the culture that we have adopted them into, in the modern culture, and you think of the the shuriken, the so-called ninja star. Of course, yeah. Uh, That was true, but there are so many different types of shuriken. The star is simply one different form. But they come in all different uh, sizes, shapes. Uh, They were made out of all different kinds of material. They're essentially throwing knives. Yeah, they can be made out of anything that is sharp and discarded. So discarded metals or what have you. Uh, You think of the katana as being the primary weapon of the samurai, the iconic weapon of the samurai. That was actually the primary weapon of the ninja as well. Uh, Yes. a, A single blade on your back used to be pulled very quickly or hidden beneath your clothing hidden in the sleeve somewhere where you could strike with it very very fast and quick because the blade itself doesn't have to be terribly long most katana are actually relatively short in terms of you know like the broad swords of europe or what have you uh and it was a very quick precise weapon it may not fit our typical image of a ninja yeah maybe more so a samurai but it was their primary weapon
1: yeah it definitely fits more with the samurai especially because of the uh, the amount of detail that goes into making them we'll get to that yeah we have to talk about the tech Oh, of course we do that the tech of the technology of the katana is
0: it's astonishing is truly astonishing it's just it yeah it there's Ladies no other word. brian is, is awestruck he is, is speechless grappling hooks Right, you, you think of grappling hooks and ninjas,
1: dude. You're making me think of one man when you keep telling me about. When you talk about shuriken that can be of all shapes and sizes, and grappling hooks, and dark clothing where they blend in, you're making me think of Batman, dude. I'm yeah, sorry. Like, he, there's so much of of that romanticized part of the ninja that is projected onto Batman. I can't not bring bring well, it up. Well, with in this the podcast. Dark Knight
0: uh, literature that came out originally, and then of course later the Dark Knight movies, uh, they blended the character so heavily with, with the lore of ninjas that you can't separate them. Yeah. That's, that is True. Batman's reimagined origin is a ninja. That's who Batman is. Yeah, he
1: basically, yeah, basically his parents get murdered. He becomes a ninja, then decides he's going to be a more colorful ninja and take out criminals by being a ninja in this city where there are none. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
0: Honestly, I think that the, the Japanese writers of the 19th and 18th century would have loved Batman. Yeah. Absolutely love Batman. Back to grappling hooks for a minute. Sorry. No, it's okay. We've got a lot of nerd culture that we need to be referencing here. But uh, they're absolutely true. There are some really impressive tools that have survived from these ninjas, and grappling hooks is one of them. There are also other kind of uh, sharp, kind of uh, winged blades, if you will, to reference Batman again, but these <laughs> you blades, <laughs> kind of, they, they're kind of shaped like that. But you might think of them as weapons. They were really just scaling tools. They were designed to kind of be picks to get into the the, to the mortar areas of some of these stone buildings Which to he's also stab it used. in there to climb.
1: Yeah, and there's also these um pads that go that uh, have the smaller little teeth on them that you can use for like climbing for climbing. Huh? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, and these are all tools of the trade. Trade tools that we know because they exist today. What they wore almost certainly would have been probably a black robe over some chainmail. That would be pretty typical for a light foot soldier at the time for a scout. That's what these folks really were. Uh, It wouldn't have been anything too elaborate because they still want to be able to to kind of blend into the general environment as well. But it may have been tinted with a bit of red to help conceal any blood from wounds that were caused by a fall or by injury in a fight or what have you. But uh, the idea of the ninja being that stealth assassin, being that, one that blends in with the environment that possesses kind of magical abilities that can literally become invisible or command the forces of the elements of nature all of that of course is a later product of literature uh, of of fictional literature but it's kind of easy to see where that comes from because if you imagine a soldier who would have been encountering a ninja or, or heard of a ninja who infiltrated their castle or infiltrated their camp and performed an act of sabotage but nothing was seen that, that is very impactful. That leaves something behind that later gets told in stories, that gets passed from generation to generation. Uh, if you think about the later uh, organized training materials that would be created, many times they reference imitating one of the elements as part of that training. So there's, there's a reference to uh, you know the, the training of the stone, of being an element of stone. So you are still, you are quiet, you are silent, you're not being seen. Uh, Somebody who's later reading that and interpreting that might actually think that they are commanding these elements and becoming like stone, like some of these uh, legends of ninjas that are told. It is interesting, though, how they would eventually merge into everything that you've been talking about in terms of uh, the the political unrest of of Japan. Because after the, the Iga and the Koga clans became very prominent, became known for creating these skilled, trained ninjas they were on the hit list.
1: They were, Of course they were, because they're the ones who did all the
0: work and then the ones who have taken power know how dangerous they are. Yeah. Because they know all the secrets. Sure. They weren't just committing espionage and sabotage either. They were also committing assassinations. Right. Uh, although most of the high-profile assassinations that are recorded from ninjas becoming the, the hitmen, uh, almost all of them failed. And they were actually shown as examples of how their enemies did not succeed in killing them. And many of those ninja were, were uh, executed publicly. Yeah, uh, There were, of course, many more that, that did succeed in doing so. But there are not a lot of high-profile assassinations that can historically be attributed sure. to ninjas. And it makes you think, well, how much of that is lore? How much of that is reality? And honestly, for a lot of scholars, it's yeah. still kind of up in the air. Well, there is a dark side to samurai, you
1: know. And to focus on one side and not mention the other does a disservice to history to showing both sides of it and the samurai had i mean we talk about this bushido and we talk about all this other these other great things but the truth of the matter is that the path to that peace that was formed on the tokugawa shogunate was a path that was no trail in blood you know blood. yeah helped. oh it, it involves slaughtering lots and lots of people and because of these warring warlords when a foot soldier wanted to get a bounty for a uh, a either a rogue samurai or another war- lord There was a whole ceremony where they had to show his head, present his head to the warlord in order to get the bounty. And it was not uncommon for these warlords to have these heads uh, mounted as ornaments in their palaces uh, to show, hey, this is who I've taken out. Don't mess with me, basically.
0: But, you know, we we talk about that now and we, you know, we might cringe at the thought of it, but we kind of do the same thing today even. You know, think about everything that's gone on with this global war on terrorism. Whenever some terrorist cell is taken out and some terrorist leader is taken out, many times we take a photo of the body and and display it. We have a a video of
1: of the team. It's not publicly available. We had a video of the team taking out Osama bin Laden.
0: Yeah, there was a lot of debate over whether or not that should actually be released. And of course, it was decided that ultimately it would be a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, And whether you agree with that or not it is what it is. But
1: nevertheless, we wanted to know it was the guy. We didn't yeah. want to take our chances. Yeah. Yeah. So, we, there was a logistical reason for it too, but yes, I, there is the ornament aspect of it as well.
0: I just wanted to make that point, that it, that it is definitely, you know, part of modern world as much as it is the ancient world. Definitely. Ancient world might have been a little bit more literally bloody, but ours is yeah. uh, just as bloody as through photographs.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, oh, this pesky temporal vortex. I, I was just getting right in my groove. Know. It always happens.
1: It, it, it never happens in a time it's convenient, let's be honest. Yeah. Music sounds oddly familiar. Huh. Oh, my lord, um, where are we? Norman, where have you led us to? I
0: don't know. It looks strangely like Purgatory from what I've read. Uh, that was kind of insulting. Who the hell are these guys?
1: They look, kind of look like us. It's weird, but just like really, really from a different time... Sort of medieval. I'm sorry, could you guys state your names? Ah, uh,
0: yes. I am uh, Norman Tosha.
1: And I am Sir Brian of the Bridges of Madison County. Oh. um, Th- I had this as a dream. But maybe I wasn't dreaming. Maybe I was tapping into some other alternate reality.
0: It's been known to happen
1: with the Vortex before. Anyway, what do you guys want? Yes, we, we've decided. We, we, we hear that in this new where well, we've been exploring, uh, that it's not uncommon to listen to books now, not just read them.
0: Oh, which is good for me, because, yeah, you know, I can't read. Yes. Well, I can't really listen either. I mean, I can't hear, but I don't really listen. I, it, go ahead, Milo. Yeah. And it seems that you're recording what they call a podcast, is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's the thing here. Yeah, definitely. Yes, but
1: it stands to reason that if you like listening to podcasts, that you would
0: perhaps like listening to a book be read to you, yes? I would agree, absolutely. In fact, there's a lot of great books available on audible.com, and if you head over to our website, you can click on our link from any of our blog posts, and uh, in fact, for the show notes for this blog post, in fact, and uh, sign up for a free trial. We get a little bit of a benefit from it. Oh, yeah, this is true. Um, at least that's what I'm led to believe.
1: Yes, well, this has been fun, but uh, Norman and I do have to be going.
0: I did leave the badger on the fire, and I don't want it to get burned again. Uh, it was gamey last time. I'm sorry about that, but Lord, yes, don't hit the me
1: child is Yes, as <laughs> yes, well. Toodle doo.
0: Bye. That was um.
1: They were polite, actually. Yeah, it was a
0: little, 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 little different.
1: Norman has a smell problem
0: now. A little bit. I don't smell like that, do I?
1: No, not okay, at all.
0: Okay. Anyway, what were we talking about?
1: Oh, yeah, ninjas. <laughs> yes, ninjas. Well, Japan in general, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So where, where were you?
0: Well, okay, we're, we're talking a little bit about how. Uh, eventually, Nobunaga takes his forces, tries to turn the tide of battle because these ninja are simply becoming uh, uh, unacceptable. They're, they're being employed against him. He's got to get rid of them. So he invades the the Iga province uh, and essentially destroys that entire clan. Wow. Yeah, burns them to the ground, burns the villages to the ground, kills them all, kills this this new tradition that had become too big of a threat to him, and kind of sets his his sights on on further clans. But what is interesting is uh, Tokugawa did the opposite. He still kind of uh, usurped, if you will, but he he more or less took the survivors from these invaded provinces and from these destroyed clans and employed them as his own personal bodyguards. Uh, He used them as a special elite forces in a series of battles uh, and sieges of castles and things of that nature. So many I can't even go into in detail, but there's a lot that's been written about this. It's one of the, the last recorded uses of ninjas Uh, in existence. And with that, really becomes the decline uh, of the ninja, because they wouldn't survive much longer after this. Now that their their clans and guilds were being disbanded and and these people were being employed, again, as mercenaries, but uh, in a much more strict fashion, right? They were now uh, brought into the ranks, if you will. Uh, It was only a matter of time before the tradition would die out. Yeah. And, you know, there are those who still claim that there has been an unbroken line of ninjas out there. And this is a really kind of touchy subject because I don't want to step on anyone's toes, but I also can't ignore the fact that, historically speaking, there's really no evidence to support this. There are a few different organizations out there that have existed pretty much since the 1970s, uh, and we're talking about modern times, right? So, who who claim to have this unbroken lineage going back thirty four generations and passing down the teachings of ninjutsu from generation to generation, but there really isn't anything to to support that. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I I don't want to discredit these folks, and I don't want to call them you know charlatans or what have you, because they they are practicing martial arts and they're extremely good at what they do, and they are passing on yeah. traditions in that sense. But there are some who who do say it's a bit dishonest to kind of make those claims without being able to su- yeah. substantiate
1: without having all the facts let me pose uh, a legitimate giving them the benefit of the doubt argument maybe one of the guys who founded this school is descended from someone from that who is a remainder of that clan and that's what they're referring to
0: hey mongoose equation right, right. Any, anything is possible anything it just has a level of probability sure uh but it does kind of beg the question then why come out in the 1970s when ninjas had become a huge part of American pop culture? Well, obviously now it's,
1: op- it's capitalizing on an opportunity, yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's um, there's definitely that aspect of it, too. And
0: but- you would hope, though, that, you know, there would be further writing on it, that there would be something in existence of that. But the counter argument to that is that because so many of these folks were coming from that lower class who probably didn't know how to read or write, uh, that tradition wasn't being passed on. Uh, and so once they had disappeared from public light, it would have been easier for them to maintain a low-key profile. I don't know. Like I said, I, I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to say what's right or wrong and who, who has the right claim or who doesn't. I'm just here reporting the the facts, and yeah. and that's what they are. Really, the, the
1: history of the ninja and the samurai are really interwoven with one another. You they know? are. They are, and they, they do play very instrumental parts to the forming of the unification of Japan.
0: Yeah, they're they're two sides of the same coin. And, uh, you know, it's, it's no big surprise then that later writers would find so much material to use, to create so much fiction, to build around them and to turn them into what they are today, which is cultural icons and not just in Japan, but now what they have become to the rest of the world, particularly to so many of us nerds, uh, out here in, in Western culture.
1: Definitely. Well, I mean, we have to talk about the tech because the technology i mean very much plays into why samurai were so good at what they did yeah you got a couple of things going with them first of all they were tremendous marksmen with bows and arrows and they had very fast arrows
0: oh absolutely of course the ninja employed also the uh, the the blow dart
1: exactly uh, that
0: that is not something that is fiction that is that is true that's an actual weapon
1: totally and these arrows that they fired were very very fast so much so that it was not uncommon for samurai to, uh, to as a test of their metal as it were to deflect one that was fired at them <laughs>
0: no pun intended
1: so you have that right and because of that you also have to take into account well, what kind of armor do you need to repel those types of quick piercing arrows and plus also also have be able to handle short-range combat with with swords
0: and also intimidate the crap out of the person that you're about definitely
1: to kill. i mean samurai armor in the early phases was very much like European armor. It was this you know, these plate metal chest plates that had some neck guards and some shoulder guards and the helmet. Not unlike uh I would say like the the cavalier style of armor that would be done toward like the English English Civil War. Yeah. That kind of level of armor.
0: Well essentially just about everybody in the world once they figured out ironwork more or less made made similar armor. Exactly. But yeah, but I understand the yeah. comparison that you're making.
1: What they found that was that was more flexible to them was instead of having to mold one piece of armor, no, no, make small plates of armor, punch holes in them, and then Tie weave them yeah. together. Yeah. Uh, they would basically flank them together with fabric, and they would do these very ornate designs that were, one, substantially lighter to, to carry, but also equally as effective um, because of that flanking, the, like- the likelihood of the, those breaking...
0: Well, the range of mobility that you have with that allows the use of arms and legs and your torso in a way that you just couldn't do with with less sophisticated armor.
1: Absolutely, and then you know that also explains the very Darth Vader-looking samurai helmet, which again, that's another thing we'll have to get to in a second. Um, but it's not just to intimidate; that there is a function behind it, right? The big one is hey, if a katana is going to swing and try to cut your head off, it provides an exact opposite angle to deflect a sword from chopping your head off. Yeah. So it, it guards your neck. And
0: it's kind of like the armor equivalent of a mullet.
1: <laughs> I guess. Yes. And there were still neck guards below that, too. So they they really had a lot of their bases covered. This was very effective armor that was effective for both short range and long range, right? No armor is perfect, of course. So, of course, people still died in the battlefield. But it reduced those chances pretty greatly. So um, what I really want to talk about next, though, is the katana. The katana is we've already mentioned it before it's just it is so beautiful
0: are you actually going to be able to talk about it cuz i was so speechless before that i, I now i'm speechless now, yeah. I, now i can't even get it out
1: so the the way they make the steel is ingenious because they basically cook it in these beds for like 3 days and they get two forms of steel out of it one with a higher amount of carbon and one with a lower amount of carbon what i find really interesting is they the special I, I watched on it uh, from uh, pbs talked about the actual science behind the different types of steel. The outer steel is a very uh, hard steel, so it's got less carbon in it. And basically what you do is because you're heating the iron, the iron swells and the carbon gets locked uh, in between the, the iron atoms, so therefore making this this molecule of carbon. And carbon in it on its own is very tough stuff. And the molecular bonds that that carbon uses... Is very, very hard to break. It's in and of itself is very tough. So you got iron, which is a very hard metal, and you got carbon, which is a very tough element that you make into this colloid. So you have the outer shell of it basically that's made that because of the, the lower carbon, it is very, very hard. It, it's good for the cutting aspect of it. But the core of the blade is filled with the higher carbon stuff. So it's much tougher. It's also more flexible because of that. Mm. So almost uh, sounds
0: like a shock absorption.
1: Exactly, it's, it is a shock absorption. That's amazing. Yeah, and so these expert sword makers work the iron or work the steel to make this kind of U shape, mm-hmm. and then they they have the, the centerpiece of which basically is the blade, the core, the blade, and then they put it the two uh, together in in a ceremony that is super important. Um, it's it's basically when the two are kind of merged together, they have to get heated together. In a way so that the harder metal has to swell to the point where the two will, when you cool it the right way, the outer core tightens enough so that the two basically bond yeah. together. And there's still a point in time where one in three swords fail this process and, and then they break. So it's not a perfect process even to this day.
0: But once you do get a good result, though, you have the perfect sword.
1: Yes, and, and that's actually where the curvature comes from. It's actually a straight blade. But in that cooling process, because of that bonding, it actually naturally causes the sword to bend hmm. to, to create the curvature to it, which is also what makes it so flexible, because it's creating a uh, a more efficient path of motion. Yeah, right. And this is not in common with other swords too. When you get the the curvature, it also means you can slash.
0: Oh, more. slicing is much more efficient.
1: Exactly, and that's we see this in sabering uh, in in the Western world too. It's what allows for the slashing to happen. Otherwise, it's two movements. It's a it's a Diagonal cut, and then you have to pull back. Whereas it's one circular motion with the the katana.
0: Adds to that fluidity of of the motion.
1: Correct. And also helps determine the whole sword form, right? Kendo, which is the actual term for Japanese fencing that the katana is based off of, or based around, I should say, is all predicated on that curved sword. It's all the movements are all designed to be as efficient as possible. Because if you miss a stroke with a kendo move, if you miss a stroke in, in European swordsmanship, you have to be real fast on your feet and you have to come up with some other parry move. Otherwise, you might lose a limb or your life. Yeah. Because of the circular motions of kendo, if you miss a move, you can swing around and get ready to go into another move right away. So yeah. It's very, very fluid.
0: Well, you know, what I what I love is that the, the whole tradition surrounding the fighting style, the harmony that's a part of it, yeah, and- is reflected in the very weapons tools and yeah. armor that are being used by the people who are wielding it.
1: and speaking of harmony i mean so much of the tradition of building the katana is built into the is um based out of the shintoist philosophy to the point where the, the sword maker has to his, his spirit his soul has to be in the right spot when he's in the the sword making process in order for it to to be considered uh, a worthy sword and if these swords are handmade. First off, it takes months to make just one sword, right? So these guys don't do many per year. Yeah. <laughs> Some and these are now. I mean, the sad thing is these don't see combat anymore, unless you are still one of the grand masters who are trying to maintain the way of the samurai just for posterity.
0: Yeah, but up until uh, the end of the Second World War, they were still seen in battle.
1: They were still seen in battle. Exactly, they were still being issued. um, Though they were being mass produced by that point in time, though they were being they were, uh, but they were still.
0: But there were many officers in the Japanese military who had samurai swords that were being passed down from generation to generation. Many of them going back hundreds of years. Sure. So while you certainly had those that were being mass produced and handed out to families who were maybe not of uh, higher breeding, so to speak, right in the caste system that still existed then, you did have soldiers who were who were holding onto blades that were prized possessions that were passed down. So much so that there are many American GIs who ended up taking them off the body of dead Japanese soldiers who yeah. felt guilty many years later, who've made efforts to actually return those swords yeah. to the family of which they took it from originally. Well,
1: that's essentially what, what they've become now. They've become art pieces. You know, they they get hung in. Yeah. And I mean, and, and this is a sad case where it's more of a war trophy, but... But in, what's so
0: amazing, though, and I have, to, I have to interrupt you, because even though it's a war trophy, it's such an imposing... War Trophy has such a a power behind it that it has brought people years later to want to look at the engravings and carvings on it and try to find the family it belonged sure. to. Its very presence almost demanded it. Sure. That's incredible.
1: And rightfully so, because these are valuable. Some of these finely made katana nowadays go for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah, they are super, super expensive. And also, just to think about the impact of this weapon, because it wasn't just men who were using it like in that was in in europe the elegance of the katana um you know allowed for there to be samurai women not just for samurai men in fact the grandmaster takeda uh, now his daughter is an expert swords person with wielding the katana and uh, this was not uncommon during those periods too because women had to be able to defend the household and also uh, die with honor if they were to be taken so they had to have both the short sword the dagger for committing uh, Harikiri Subaku. or Sibaku for disembowelment, as well as having, you know, the sword for the actual defense.
0: If we're going to pull up some parallels, you're talking about this this elegant, ritualistic sword making for the samurai. And while the katana was also a blade of the of the ninja, as I said, a primary weapon, they did have many other tools of their trade uh, that were used as weapons. But like I said, they were mostly scrap metal. So it was almost the exact opposite in that mm-hmm. regard. Whereas it was all about ceremony and ritual and honor, to the ninja was about what was effective, what was nearby, what was available, and what could kill. Yeah. Uh, But there were also women ninjas, because when it became a tradition where you were passing it down from generation to generation, uh, there would be situations where you wouldn't be teaching it to just a son, you'd be teaching it to a daughter. You may have to, yeah. And what perfect, unsuspecting person would you see then, you know, as a peasant girl? Walking through town, who's course, also a the one who
1: is the, the lowest risk, right? That you would you would assess, yeah. Or if she can I-
0: infiltrate into areas where others can't and be able to hear the those important messages that pass on to give the upper hand to the soldiers.
1: Sure, man. There's been so much that we've talked about, and a lot. We, we we really want to bring this home with talking about well, samurai and ninja. To this day, they still grace us with the presence. I'm gonna say it, we talked about Batman and the ninjas. That's that's a dead giveaway. But as nerds. We pay homage to the samurai in a different way because we call them something different. We call them Jedi. Jedi, Yeah, exactly.
0: Look around our nerd cave. Our nerd cave pays homage to how many different types of ninjas and samurai that are in this room right now. It's totally, We got Yoda chilling up there. We got Darth Vader all around. Right. Uh, You know, we got Wolverine over here. Very uh, huge uh, infusion to Japanese culture and, and, you know, the silver samurai. All of that that would bleed over, but absolutely the jedi Who?
1: i mean so the jedi let's talk about this for a second because we got the most obvious which is the samurai deflecting an arrow with the katana right that's easily a jedi you know using the lightsaber to, yeah, to
0: deflect a blaster to ba-
1: blaster right but going beyond that look at the robes the robes look like the kind of robes that a daimyo warlord would have worn just less ornate looking let's talk about the lightsaber itself it, the whole lightsabering techniques that were used in the star wars movies was based off of kendo yeah um
0: there are rituals surrounding hair and hairstyles. Absolutely, the Force. You know, you're you're talking about commanding the elements. You know, that commanding became a legend elements. of many exactly. samurai and ninja. And how
1: about the word Jedi? The word Jedi itself was derived from the Japanese word Jidai, and which just means era. And it's to kind of imply that these this is an ancient force that has been around, right?
0: Yeah, an ancient society.
1: But also look at Darth Vader the the best Jedi who also became the best villain. He looks he's like a samurai. A frickin, so he's got samurai armor. <laughs> Just they added the cloak, basically, yeah, to make him look more imposing. But he's basically wearing a space robot version of samurai exactly. <laughs> armor. Um
0: But I gotta draw the parallel because if you're talking about the Jedi as being the samurai, I can't help but see the parallels between the Sith and the ninjas. Oh, dude, up top, yeah, right there. I know. Yeah
1: uh no seriously though you totally rocked it right there (laughs) i'm sorry like you're saying that the samurai or the the jedi the ninja or the sith that's awesome
0: it's totally true though because the the sith are a little bit more low-key right they're kind of hidden away you don't know when they're going to attack many times they're assassins they're very very stealthy uh they they use similar weapons and, and art forms they do exactly And they have a similar command over the the elements as well and they're they're very they're very mystical in that sense uh they they, they, these both are but the ninja has this kind of dark connotation associated with it right because of their less than ceremonial deeds Uh, whereas the jedi are held on these great big high pedestals the sith are considered so below but each of them see themselves in the opposite light and that's so true of the ninja and the samurai
1: that's uh, totally true yeah Dude, that's, that's great. I, I have nothing else to say to that. It's, just, it's fantastic. And it doesn't stop there, too. The stories of the samurai haven't just influenced comic book and sci fi lore, it's also influenced westerns. Sure. You have to remember the Seven Samurai was the influence for the Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Right? And that's not the only one. Uh, I'd be, I have to admit, my, my genre film knowledge as a film nerd is not as strong when it comes to both the uh, Kurosawa uh, samurai movies or with with the westerns, but there's a number of the quote-unquote spaghetti westerns that were basically western adaptations of Japanese lore from the samurai. So it, it goes way deeper than just the, the more obvious connections we can draw.
0: In fact, listeners, if you have a connection that we haven't made that you really want to shout out, let us know. Obviously, there's a lot in modern Japanese culture, so Uh, I do watch anime, a bit of anime from time to time. There's a huge influx of that into into the anime world. Uh, And these legends and stories that were first written down many hundreds of years ago are finding a new life in that medium, in manga and and anime. Yeah, true. So, you know, and of course, look at Japan and its live action ninja and samurai movies and TV shows that are in the thousands. There's so many of them. And really,
1: we're seeing those... I mean, it's it's uh, to make a cross-cultural parallel here. I mean, we've we've always talked about we always deify our kind of our soldier uh, heroes, mm-hmm. right? And so, of course, it's not uncommon for us to make these legends that are that make almost supernatural in nature. And we're seeing it now. We're just seeing them in a more exaggerated form. Well, look
0: at Arthurian legend. I mean, that's sure. kind of our way of uh, yeah glorifying the, the Middle Ages.
1: Yeah. And it's to the point now where, I mean, God, they've, they've even translated Arthur- Arthurian and Greek heroes into superheroes nowadays, too. So we talked about this in our comic book episode almost two years ago. But we're seeing that statement get proven over and over again. Yeah. With Now we're just seeing it with samurai as well. And the ninja, of course.
0: It's been a lot of fun.
1: It's been a lot of
0: fun. We really got to show our nerd this time. I like we totally that. did. I like that a lot. But we also got to really highlight an extremely important part of Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that I would love to visit in person and be able to go to Japan. And there are so many museums. There are so many uh, educational institutions that are dedicated to preserving this memory, and showing those artifacts that that still survive. So if you are a member of a Japanese community where you happen to have one of these nearby, if you've never been, please go. If you're visiting Japan, there's a, a lot of different places that you can, you can visit. And if you have any pictures, send them to us here at Nerdonomy, and we'd love to share them on our Twitter and Facebook pages.
1: Agreed. And, of course, you can also hit, hit us up on our personal Twitter accounts. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at The Brickmont. And... As we have always said, if you have it in your hearts and your wallets, yes, we have those great affiliate programs, but we also still take donations. Uh, You can uh, deliver us one by going to Neuronomy.com and clicking on the Donate button.
0: If you'd like to send us any katanas or uh, ninja stars, uh, any samurai armor, we are also accepting that as donations. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Why not? We have some room. We can fit in here. Uh, Not much, but okay. Thank you again, sir, as always. Thank you. And we will see you folks back next week where we will be uh, beginning our May of uh, listener suggestions. Indeed. And until that time, stay nerdy.
1: Get into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com.
0: Bye-bye. Later.
1: You know what, though? What's that? I bet the samurai would make a killing if they opened a deli.